Welcome, everybody, to the next episode of our podcast, Coffee Breakdown. I'm Aaron Ho, and today our guest is Dan Van Fuchs. He's the founder of Ignition Computing and a fellow fusion enthusiast himself. So welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thanks, Aaron. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so that is one thing I definitely wanted to bring you on to discuss is actually Ignition Computing, so far as I understand, is a startup that you founded. And just tell me a bit more about it, like why you decided to start it, what it's about. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so Ignition Computing, the, the name betrays it a little bit, is about uh, computing more or less to help fusion. At least uh, uh, this is the original idea, when, um, which kind of started when I was doing my PhD uh, at ITER. Um, I was doing a lot of computational work there on a, on a very complicated MSD code called Jurek and uh, was having a, yeah, a lot of fun writing these, uh, these uh, extensions, uh, doing new science there. Um, but I found that uh, I was enjoying much more writing uh, than uh, writing code than writing papers. And uh, um, so started thinking, how, how can I get myself in the position to keep doing that uh, while helping the field as maybe some of you know it's uh, um, there's not so many positions for support there's more there's many more researcher positions in this field and I noticed that at ITER a lot of the development was uh, uh, was done by by scientists or by by companies who have not so much experience in fusion and so I figured, hey, maybe maybe we can do something here. So uh, a, a plan was born to to try and uh, uh, help do some of the development for Ether and uh, maybe later also for other fusion startups. Um, and yeah, so far this this has been going quite well. Uh, I think it's uh, we've we've gotten some contracts, we've built some stuff, and I uh, I think we'll uh, continue much much more because. Um, yeah, as you may know, at Ether we're working really to to build the machine to get this first uh, iteration off the ground to to build this get this first plasma, and so much effort is going into this that there's not really enough time to to finish the software that goes with it. So we'll we'll have a very big and uh, expensive and complicated machine that we cannot really drive to the limits because we don't know where they are and we don't know how to get there. And That's so a uh, yeah. I think that's a very good point that you bring up there, right? I mean, in my experience as well, we've seen that there's a lot of scientists trying to build this software, this code on their own, but it's not their primary you know, job or, or interest or even their primary strength even, right? And so we end up with these like, you know, cobbled together codes that um, they serve the purpose, they do their job, but they are hard to maintain, they're hard to, adapt for new situations all this sort of stuff and yes there's been a lot of let's say outcry for professional support the software support on these sorts of things so i really like that you took this into your own hands be like you know like we need this and i want to make this right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah that's really cool yeah so, and, and i hope we can keep doing this in a, uh, in a bigger form because uh, ether is a bit of a special case and that they have a significant budget and that they have some of it for software development but actually if you look at the other research budgets there's very little support allocated maybe you you have an experimental budget but if you are a, a computational scientist then typically all you get is computing time and you have to figure it out yourself and mm. so that's one of the things i hope that we can change in the funding landscape uh, in the near future so that we can we can help out some more scientists yeah, that's definitely needed. And in a sense, then maybe we can get into it is also like your experience starting up a startup on its own, like going from the research field, being a scientist in academia, and then starting your own business. I also understand that this is not your first foray into startups, but uh, it is the one you are known for now. So tell me a bit about that experience as well. Yeah, so there's there's. Well, there's two things I would I would highlight. First, is that as a scientist, you're you're not that far from being an entrepreneur. If you if you look at the parallels, really, as a you you're responsible for bringing in your own money, 
So you have to do sales, more or less. Mm-hmm. If you if you get to the group lead stage, you're managing a team. You your um, your output or your sales is in papers and in in um, reputation. You're more or less um, self-dependent. Nobody is really telling you what to do. There's uh, there's a lot of parallels and um, yeah, I, I I think there's there's so much similarity except that you you don't have to do all of the boring tech stuff and uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so I I agree with you that many of the aspects are are similar in that way so I guess what you're saying is that it's not that large of a jump going yeah, exactly. from academia to to starting exactly. your own business but I'm sure there are small details as you mentioned like taxes and and maybe like found setting up the the administrative part that is oh yeah yeah right? and the sale the sales is very different right and mm. uh, like there's no there's there's less grant writing and more smaller sales or the, the cycles are a bit faster and uh well for me i was a bit fortunate in that i've had uh like what do you call the solo entrepreneurship like uh ZZP, a one-man company for a ah. long uh, for a long time actually since i was 18 or something uh doing web development on the side i figured it's better than uh, stacking stacking shelves somewhere and and yeah, this gave me some experience on the on how to set up the the practical side, like uh, um, taxes, uh, incorporation, uh, but also how to yeah, what works and what doesn't in regard to to sales a little bit. And so it was quite a a natural choice. And I've well, we've tried a few things uh, during and after the PhD, not all of which worked out. Some are still alive but uh, but not very active and uh, some we have uh, had to kill um and so now what we're doing most is like is ignition computing and my other company after service and um yeah it's uh it's really interesting but the difference from going to uh, from the phd to to this is it's not as large as you would expect Hmm, that's that's very interesting. So I guess that uh, a lot of the skills that you learn in in the PhD transfer very well. So, especially for someone like you who just you see a uh, let's say an opportunity in the market or a, a lack, a gap in in the knowledge, and you want to fill it. Especially as you say, support is not sort of what do you call it a a extremely high priority in science at the moment or at least in academia at the moment. So going and founding your own business to provide it is was sort of the natural solution, I guess, to, yeah. to solving it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I saw these other, um, I saw these tools being produced at Ether as part of, uh, of development contracts where, you know, I got the feeling like, hey, we can do this. Uh, we, we, we could build this and I, I would do it in a different way. And mm-hmm. so, um, now we are doing a few, and I hope we can do many, many more soon. And uh, yeah. So what is this? What is this different way? I guess this is a good point to segue into this part, where your experience in the field, I suppose, doing software development, and also not just for yourself and for businesses, but also for the scientific field, it gives you a different kind of oversight on what software should be or how it should be developed. And maybe we can discuss that a little bit because yeah. myself, I work in software development, but on the academia side. So this would be interesting for me to know as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it depends which field you're in, in academia. Um, like Fusion is known for massive collections of legacy Fortran codes, which are very uh, good still, so hard to replace. And um, a, a whole bunch of tools which are kind of located with a research group. Whereas if you if you look at, uh, say, web development or or deep learning or any of these fields, a lot more of the stuff is really open source and a lot more um, packages build on each other. There's there's more interaction there, which uh, the community is much larger, of course, but it's, uh, it, it's something that I think we could learn from in, in Fusion as well. And there's a few there's a few obstacles for one for instance for ether all that everything they produce has to be available to ether members only and this means that it's not really easy to open source but we're work- we're working on this for some of the projects that we've developed there um 
and it, it's just a different um yeah, a different mentality or a different outlook um like have you heard of uh, not invented here syndrome oh yeah absolutely i've been a i've been almost a victim to these sorts of things too so yes <laughs> yeah like I, I i i um used to think that building your own solution typically is uh, is more fun that you you learn stuff but now we're trying to to reuse as much as possible and uh, um there is a there's a trade-off there because your dependencies have to be stable enough or maintainable enough that you you don't paint yourself into a corner or you're not stuck in 10 years from now when these Fortran codes will still work and your your sci-fi and whatever uh, contraption will not um but i feel that uh, um for many people in the fusion community it's uh, it's gone kind of the other way and a lot of things are um not openly reused or maybe not uh, um yeah well one of the bigger problems in that is something that i've recently learned how to do throughout my phd but was definitely not in my skill set when i started uh was like proper version control oh right yeah. this this is something that in academic field is is hard to implement um now there are tools very convenient tools but i still had to learn them like git right like yeah, the fundamental yeah. or svn if some people use it but these things are not standard in terms of like the skill set of an academic um and and they are they, extremely, they, should be. they should be correct perhaps especially if you're working with software and software I, development i think it's getting better now so most of the classes i've seen now teach this so hmm. at least the fresh master students uh, should know and um so maybe maybe we're we've passed the problem now but there's still a lot of people who don't know this or who don't use this properly yeah but it has enabled like even my knowledge in it and this is it is slowly spreading but it has enabled um faster development you know and less let's say uh stigma against having other people work on projects that you're developing oh yeah because you suddenly have more tracking of who's actually doing what and what they contributed to the code it's not like they change a line and suddenly it's changed and you have no idea what changed <laughs> or how right so that it's removes true, yeah. some of the stigma of people who like want control over their code or over their software um, yeah it, it allows them to collaborate a lot more and I think it's a nice topic to get a little further into because um, the real question that we've been asking ourselves uh, um, at the, the Dutch Federation for Research Software Engineers, or we're hosting a meetup on that soon, is um, how open source should our research software be? Because mm -hmm. there's a few reasons that you would want this for the community, but there's a few reasons also for you personally. And there's a few possible drawbacks. And one of them is indeed, what if they break stuff? Mm -hmm. Then, of course, with version control and with some uh, proper automated integration testing, you're more or less protected against that. But there's a, there's a whole bunch of other reasons why maybe you keep some stuff hidden. Like uh, this code that I worked on, Jurek, um, I think there's uh, like 60 to 100 people or so who have access. And that's, wow. that, that's all. And uh, there's, there's reasons for that, like reputational reasons. Uh, and you can get access, but it's not that like you go on GitHub and you clone a project. And but still, six to a, sixty to one hundred is still a lot of people working on a single code, right? I mean, yeah. So this this group has grown quite a lot in the last few years, and not everyone is developing as intensely. Hmm. Like typically, you have a few core contributors who do most of the work, and then there's many many people who are using it and adapting it slightly and fixing small bugs they encounter, etc. Ah, okay. So, so it's still like a, it's the larger community of users than developers in that sixty to hundred. Yeah, you don't have to split them out so uh, so much. I mm -hmm. I think, um, especially for for us, for scientists, it's very easy to make small to understand what the code is doing and to suggest small fixes. And um, I I don't, I'm personally not really a fan of this user developer divide. Ah, okay. It makes sense if you're if you're deploying an application somewhere or if you're hosting a web server or whatever but if you're providing a very complex computational tool which is typically used in concert with other tools and uh, you yeah you should expect a little bit more knowledge from whoever runs it and more um, 
yeah work or contribute contributing back also hmm i see so in some sense that the user eventually does transition to at least a minor developer they, yeah. they contribute bits here and there and so you're saying it doesn't make sense to really think of people as users and developers more it's, just yeah. it's people like a, working it, on the code <laughs> yeah people like there's more you you can do to contribute than just uh, uh writing new lines right you could write documentation you could file bug reports and uh i think we can learn from the open source community on how to do this how to get people to have a nice onboarding path to contribute even if you're not in a in a specific group yeah so so there is there is one question right also the amount of of overhead needed to you know to organize this you need some core members whose i guess core function yeah. is to oversee all the different people who are using it and all the issues that they're coming up with and you know actually coordinating the resolution of these yeah. issues right like which ones are more important which ones are less and you know divvy the resources is there is there an issue like because that overhead sometimes it's usually a scientist who has to do that sometimes you know that's not their primary mm. function like they would prefer to do their own research rather than i, I, I think the yeah code. Yeah, you're exactly right. I think this is one of the reasons that a lot of stuff is hidden mm. or, or not public. And um, it's uh, it's also that you, because you don't really get a lot of recognition for doing it. People who, who use the code, maybe they cite your paper and uh, maybe they know who you, who the maintainer is, mm -hmm. probably not. And in your, in your funding applications, it doesn't really figure in too much yet. Yeah, in terms, I guess, in terms of amount of time spent versus amount of, of return that you get from the community yeah. is is a bit uh, unbalanced at the moment but is there do you think there's a way to to change that right like because it's going to be if we want to move in that direction mm -hmm. how how do you uh, foresee that we could tip the balance back yeah so i i hope there would be uh, an option to allocate budget to either contribute directly to uh, your your code to the to the community to get some return on that or alternatively to uh, be able to reward maintainers for their uh, their role in the community so that like, imagine you you get a maybe you get a grant from nwo and uh, part of the grant is like a two percent uh, uh, infrastructure budget or whatever that uh, you could uh, uh, use to create Patreon or whatever to maintain some of the libraries which which you are using and which are really helping you. Hmm. Because we have we have to realize that um, you're getting it for free now, but the only reason you get it for free is because someone has made it. And uh, if you want to keep enjoying these updates, maybe it's good to support people who are making this. Yeah, that's that's a good point, right? I mean, I don't know if I fully endorse sort of like a subscription at least in science a subscription-based thing but i'm i don't know it there is there should be a way to return to the person who makes and maintains these codes yeah. um, in some meaningful fashion though i guess some people have built their careers on having a code you know they they if it becomes so big that it is you know it's an essential piece of the toolkit. Like the, there was no way that anyone would let it fall to the side. In some sense, being the one who knows the most about it is some form of job security or some form of career security. Exactly. Um, but I think that's the only avenue of return that exists at the moment. And like not all codes make it to that level, right? No, <laughs> of, I think, I think <laughs> most don't actually. But yeah. uh, but you're right, It's it's uh, it can help with uh, getting your name out there as a, as a junior scientist, which I think is one of the most important things. And one of the things that we more or less forget during the PhD. We mm. all have this, uh, this tendency to um, work, 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 and to, to solve really difficult problems. And then maybe eventually you, uh, you realize, oh yeah, uh, we should tell as many people as possible about it. But uh, um, this is really the first thing that you should do. And it's uh, yeah because you're you're 
your career depends on your on your on your connections there and on how you um well you'll find your postdoc most probably through some someone that knows you or your work mm -hmm. and uh the best way to get people to know you or your work is to share it with them and so i think uh, on a personal level it can be very um productive to make something useful and to to give it away and mm -hmm. um eventually you can get job security out of this maybe if you if it becomes important enough and you are the obvious maintainer that it uh, makes sense to include you in uh, all kinds of future projects because the functionality is necessary right and i think that that that's true i think there i've spoken to other you know phd students who have developed um either modifications to codes or a code of their own and i have asked them to you know would they consider open sourcing it and i it's always some sort of pushback on it, right? Like, because it is a fair amount of work. Like I've open sourced a fair amount of my developments and I understand it now. It is, it is a fair amount of work um, because it needs to be somewhat professionally written. It needs to, what? well, it needs to work and smoothly. Yeah. If other people use it, then they're going to release like issues or, or send you emails. Like this doesn't work in this particular case. Um, could you fix it? And so it is a lot of maintenance time. Um, I can see why someone in the middle of their PhD probably doesn't want that extra burden on oh, yeah. them. But is there like, but it is valuable to do it, right? In the I end. So. And I, I think in many cases, you may not even get away with not releasing your code eventually because it's going to become a requirement of, for many journals to publish what your your inputs to your work mm -hmm. it's uh well it's slowly moving in this direction at least and uh, i think i think the message i guess uh or at least the question i have to you is if you were to sort of ask people to open source the codes they've developed do you is there a strategy that you um recommend right or a way to do it that you recommend that is sort of reasonable both on getting a, a, an open source code at the end, but also on the person who is uh, doing the open sourcing, like doing the code development. That's why I, I don't know. I think it's a decision that you as a maintainer should should make um, out of your own conviction. So I, I guess it would make sense to explain why it's very helpful to others and to the community if we, if we could all do this, but this is a very um, general argument and it's much better to focus on the the specifics of say hey uh, this could get you hired somewhere like mm. mo most of us after a phd will not find a postdoc because there is uh, like a, a factor 10 less post fewer postdocs and phd positions or something um, so, yeah I'm, I'm not sure if it's factor 10 maybe it's five but uh, it's but less it's less for sure <laughs> <laughs> um but 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 still, and, and then it's uh, it's very good if you can actually show something you've worked on, or if you uh, get some connections. Um, so it it could help on a personal level also. But I think we have to, we have to slowly go there, and um, there's other fields where this uh, this tendency is much stronger, which where it's much more developed. I think here in in the fusion field, there's a uh, there's a few I say competitive uh, groups which uh, have uh, their own code as sort of their competitive advantage also. So you don't want this to spread too far. And it's uh, um, it's a race and it's also fun. Mm. It's also a way to get people to uh, uh, get the best out of their research to, to work hard. But uh, um, I think in uh, like, uh, well, not that I know too much about some of the other research fields, but I have the, the feeling that it's much better there in the other fields then yeah, yeah yeah okay in what sense do you could you say in terms of like the the reward that you get out of it or in... oh just just in in um which tools i've encountered like uh, um never now and then you you find some tools to solve a problem that you have and and then this comes from for instance it comes from bioinformatics these guys release a lot of stuff and then uh 
for me, that's kind of a sign like, hey, uh, they, they're open sourcing much more stuff because how often do I encounter like a, like a workflow management engine or whatever uh, from the fusion field? Mm, I see. So I, uh, I see your point. But there's also, I guess we can move into the next part, which might be interesting uh, for people who want to open source their codes is how to, I guess, in a way, protect themselves, right? This licensing issue. Most open source codes now have some sort of like open source license, yeah. but there are different types of them. And depending on, you know, how, how exactly open you want it to be, you can pick different ones. And I think that a lot of people are also just ignorant on what options they have and thus comes a bit of pushback on that as well. So maybe you can explain a bit um, if, if you're, if you're, if you oh, wish. I, I, I have some idea there, but I'm not an expert on, on all kinds of licenses, but there's, uh, there's basically two big groups. You have the, the copyleft licenses, which uh, are like the GPL, um, which ensure that any copy that people make is also covered with the same license and uh, are kind of lock this code into being open source forever. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are the, the freer licenses like uh, MIT, BSD, Apache, which uh, basically say, here's the code, but uh, use it at your own risk and have fun. Um, those are much more compatible or easy to use uh, for other organizations because they can they can modify it and keep it inside their own organization, whereas the, the copyleft licenses, you uh, you have to contribute back, basically. Ah, I see. Okay. So, so it... that's the main split. And then there's different versions, different variants. Um, there's some good websites that, that explain this. There's like license picker websites. So I would recommend to take this or to look at another package that you use where you, uh, you know that they thought about it. So maybe I'll please send the link if you haven't already, and I'll put it into the description of this uh, of this podcast episode. I All think right. that those who are interested can have a look on their own. Then um, let's shift into the more more technical aspects. So so we've covered more or less the administrative part, right? Like open sourcing a code, what it would require of you as a person. But there's also the other side of computing, which you deal with, which is like the technical part of computing. Obviously, a lot of codes that get produced from, a, from the academic world are, are not, you know, that high in terms of computer science, right? Like in terms of parallelization or in terms of just being compatible with different architectures, all this sort of stuff. Do you see that as something that an academic field or an academic person should handle? Or is that what the support the comp like companies like you, Ignition Computing, are for in a way? I, I, I think this is firmly a support role. And mm. it doesn't have to be an external company even. I, there are institutes which have uh, computing support staff. And uh, depending on the, the skills there, you can get quite far. If, for the bigger institutes, this works. Um, but really, if you, you have an expert in, I don't know, uh, gyrokinetics, and you're asking them to, uh, to figure out the fastest way to run something on the GPU, it's a very different skill set. And you can possibly, you, you'll, you'll learn a lot as a PhD student in that case, but you can also waste a lot of time. <laughs> Absolutely, especially when you're being graded on 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 the physics, right? Rather than exactly the code and acceleration. Only the physics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so there's there's a, there's a few um, forces at play here. One is that um, you're not really um, paying for your computing time. Typically, your some research group will get a big allocation of uh, say a million hours or something, and and spend take the year to spend this. And then uh, typically they don't completely spend it or you go over budget and it's uh, um, maybe there's a little stress then. And it's very insulated. Like I think it's quite easy as a PhD student to spend more in compute costs than in salary costs. So um, you don't notice this and that means that there's not so much an incentive except for not wanting to wait to really optimize. Mm -hmm. which is fine. I mean, you're optimizing for time to results, not computing time. Mm -hmm. But as uh, uh, if we want to save some uh, some electricity and we want to 
save some time and some money, then maybe it makes sense to have people available for help uh, or to, to build little shared bits of infrastructure. And yeah, I think we can do better there. Like if, you're, if you have an experiment, then also you have technicians to help there. And there are a whole bunch of tasks that you wouldn't put junior people in, in charge of. That's true. I think that there are there is a role for having this type of support available. I there there is a question of you know how most institutes, at least that I know of, or or universities even, don't really invest in that type of support. So it would take, I guess, a particularly insightful PI, principal investigator, to actually then engage in getting that support for their team or for their code or something like this is, I guess that in that sense, is there a lot available out there well, from so, your so experience? In, in Fusion, they're, they're, this is improving, right? So you have uh, the Eurofusion Advanced Computing Hub, for instance, mm -hmm. that, uh, that you can talk to. And then um, these are supporting the TSVV uh, groups. Um, besides that, I haven't seen this so much. Mm -hmm. um, like actually, it would go the other way around that the German PST, I was supporting some people just because it's 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 fun to solve some of these problems for them. Right. But, uh, um, I, th I think it's getting better, but I think we have a long way to go. Okay. I, I would say, yeah. So in terms of, I guess, in your opinion, what type of tasks would be best suited for support? Because I think a lot of people aren't, at least in academics, aren't capable of separating, you know, what is sort of the things we need to do just to get the task done, right? Just to look at the physics and the things that could possibly be given to a support team. And without that, without knowledge of where to draw the line, everything just gets placed into, well, we'll handle it kind of problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so so I, I I would start like imagine it's more or less a new project. I would start with a little with a an infrastructure discussion, and uh, maybe just some some knowledge sharing on what is already there, because um, it can be quite hard to to find which tools exist, which tools would solve most of your problem, or how to how to build your data sets. Uh, uh, so maybe. Uh, just a few dis a few discussions and then maybe some specific projects were allowed. Like you don't you don't want to take away all of the the work there because you know it's it's research. You don't know what's what the necessary architecture will be. Right. <laughs> but maybe you can you can you can make a guess together and and see if uh, if we can reuse something from something which is known already in the institute. And this knowledge is also kind of fleeting. Like uh, as as I mentioned, like Fortran uh, solving solver files uh, floating around. Uh, I I have some uh, some file from 1970 in my code base somewhere, and I I think everybody copies this. And uh, I, I know in, inside Differ also there are some some remnants of some nag stuff maybe. Uh, uh, yeah, old libraries for old for... libraries everywhere. Yeah, and, and so if you know that these exist as a like a PI. Is probably the the person who has found this, but uh, maybe they don't they don't even have the biggest overview yet. Yeah, especially when it comes to the availability of software out there, it's it's a completely new world. Sometimes it's it's really a, like learning a foreign language, in my opinion. It's, yeah, there's lots of stuff out there, different acronyms and different names, new terminology. It's really hard to navigate if you're not already yourself knowledgeable yeah. right so i guess in that sense having someone around who is well versed in that world is already very helpful even if they're not the ones that are, will end up doing it for you but yeah. at least someone to help navigate that is is useful but yeah, I and, think, and to give you some keywords to point you in the right direction like hey oh you i, I want to do this well you should try uh, uh sci-fi or you should try julia or you should uh, Oh, uh, this guy has done something like that in the past. Talk to him. Uh, that kind of role um, as uh, a slightly broader information sharing than just a single PI can do, I think, could be useful. And then 
yeah, the second rule is to, if you have specific uh, parts which are reused between researchers, to, to write these properly. And so this is stuff uh, uh, like uh, Karel van der Plas is doing a lot, is, mm -hmm. is, is writing infrastructure. But he's a PhD student, and all the time he spends writing infrastructure, he's not spending writing papers. Right. So there's actually a personal cost to that. And I think that that's, that's one of the, the biggest dilemmas for someone who's doing computational as, uh, things inside academia, especially if you're a PhD student, is that how much time do you spend improving the code base and how much time do you spend analyzing results from the yeah. code base, right? <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I was firmly on the time of, on, on the side of spending too much time writing and uh, um, managed to get a few papers out, but, uh, but most, of the, most of the result of my PhD was just new code. And mm -hmm. luckily people are using this now to, to bring more science um, and it has helped make a, a bit of a reputation. But besides that, if I wanted to go for academic achievement, I should have written less. Hmm. Yeah, that that's that's a big question. That is the big question. That's it's really interesting in that point of view that uh, it is necessary, as you said. Your the stuff you developed is helping to accelerate scientists who are coming after you. Let's say mm -hmm. who are using the code after you've made your your contribution, but in in the, some weird way. I mean, I don't know if this is true or not, but in some weird way, you're not getting, let's say, the credit for it either, because it's part of a bigger code and someone else is in charge of it. So in some sense, you could also see it as a bit of a, you know, a bad career move to be contributing to someone else's code. And some people do see it that way. And that's unfortunate, in my opinion. Uh, well, you know, I agree a little bit there, though. It's, um, imagine you, you, you're working with a big code and you're you're contributing a significant part. Then, um, of course, it will help sh uh, show that you know what you're doing, and it may help you get postdocs inside of this group. But if you wish to move outside of it, and um, all that happens is that maybe on the next uh, group paper your name moves from seventh to fourth, it's not helping you a lot. Mm -hmm. And so, it's um, uh, it's good to have more or less compartmentalized uh, projects that you could maybe, yeah, put your name on or something, or to have something that you could point to that is really uh, separate and yours uh, to make it to make it simple to show your achievements. And of course, yeah, if you want to do uh, do a postdoc and continue, now you're you're graded on your research more or less. And I think it's a very different track from. Uh, yeah, from the support role, this research software engineering role that, uh, that we're discussing now. Yeah, it's very interesting because I would just had this conversation a couple episodes ago uh, with Josephine Prohl, mm -hmm. um, who was, we also discussed the, ma the matter of this H factor or H index that is being used to effectively grade scientists. And inside of it, she made the comment that um, she would like to see more inclusion of support roles, but in, in her case, it was specifically mentoring, the mentoring of other students or, you know, taking on students um, being included somewhere in that, in that consideration or grading. And in your case, in terms of like supporting, in terms of software support, right, helping groups to accelerate their research through know fixing their codes squashing bugs or whatever handling handling other software related issues mm -hmm. and i'm curious to think or to ask you do you think that there is a place for evaluating or or a way to evaluate how you how much you contribute to a code base let's say so that it could be maybe included in such an h index a reevaluated h index in the future I think it's quite difficult. Okay. Um, there are some approaches, for instance, for papers to measure contributions on several different uh, fronts. I'm not sure if you've seen it. I, I forgot the name, but it's. Uh, uh, I think they have nine categories that you can 
put your 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 own name in on the paper like this is the person who did the funding this is the person who did development this was support data analysis etc um so to split it out there uh but even then if uh, so that's on a personal level but if you if you're using tools which are just available like maybe you are using uh uh raptor or some other code uh um some of the credit of your paper should go there Mm-hmm. Because it, it, in the case that it would not be possible without, like, right. okay, we're all, we're all using Python, for instance, for 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 many things, and uh, um, without it would be much more difficult to do some of the work. But we're not going to uh, to credit this on every paper, and you're not mm-hmm. going to write a list of all of your Python packages. <laughs> so it's I think it's up to the individual scientists to uh, to clarify which tools were very useful or uh special especially necessary to do their research yeah i do know in our in our when we write papers especially in the software side the computational side we do try to cite all of the specialist codes that are being used to um get the result that we're we're displaying in the paper also times we cite codes that do something similar right and we say, okay, there are these other codes which could do the same thing, but we just didn't use it at, uh, for our paper. In a way to give credit, not just to what- That's nice. Yeah, what we're using, but what other people uh, uh, have developed in tandem mm-hmm. you know, on their own. But I think that it affects the H-index because you get citations, but in the end is not a very large reward per se. Right, it's not like you oh. directly as as the person who developed the code. Maybe the PI, the person who wrote the paper that we're citing, is going to get a fair number of of uh, rewards due to the citations. But as someone who just developed, helped to develop that code, I don't think you see much of that. Right, so it's it's still a hard problem to solve, even on an individual level, because we don't have the mechanisms. Yeah. So, so what you get instead is that a lot of codes are are managed by institutes. Mm-hmm. Like uh, maybe uh, Lawrence Livermore is hosting uh, some codes. Uh, the uh, the HCF5 uh, group uh, develops it, develops it, gets funds from some governments. So um, once you get large enough, there is a way to uh, to fund important infrastructure. It's just that the the path to it is kind of uh, hard or unclear i would say and um, i think it's up to uh, to our institutes to to fund people who are not only people who are doing important science but people who are enabling important science mm-hmm. and, um, that uh, a package is not only interesting if you can also write uh, computer science papers on it yeah, and I think that, that that also comes to a part where it's particularly interesting that academic people, people who are end up doing research as a career, are very interested not only in advancing their career, but also tend to have a personality that wants to help the community. And that what is what allows them to go forward and make spend a lot of time and effort making these things for other people effectively. Yeah. Um, but it's it's hard it's hard with that type of community to put something in that returns to the individual. It usually returns to the body that you know the, the the administrative body that has all these individuals in it, but not directly to the individual. So it's it's a it's a question, I suppose, and we don't have to have the answer. But I was just curious if you had any thoughts on how to do that. Well, um, yeah. I'm not sure how to get how uh, how to get some more credit to the individual. I think um, if you get to the more important packages, people will know who the main maintainer is, and mm-hmm. uh, you may get uh, approached by companies to work. And I think there are many many cases where prolific open source contributors have had a very easy time uh, getting hired. So right. it's uh, um, it's really it's it's works quite well in that way. I think. And besides that, it doesn't have to be uh, a consideration like, oh, it's my full-time job to open source my code. No, it's more like I spend 
5% of my of my time uh, doing those kind of things. And if everyone does it, then we have a, a, a massive force of people writing public code. That's true. Well, I think that is what academia is in some yeah. sense, right? <laughs> yeah. And we, have to, we have to find a balance between um, keeping your, your group advantage, uh, being able to be the first to write your papers on, on new subjects, and sharing the methods you use, not only the results. Mm-hmm. Like this is this is kind of linked to the this reproducibility crisis that has been happening in some fields, and also for us, it's 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 quite hard if you are reviewing a paper with some uh, uh, result from some other code to actually look into what's happening there, especially if you if it's uh, one which requires significant computing time to to reproduce or which uh, requires tools that you don't have access to. Yeah, that's, that is a fair point. A lot of my efforts as well in the PhD was benchmarking mm-hmm. because we don't know what was done before or how it was done or what the code is precisely doing that we have to start making comparisons with other codes where we do know what they're doing just to double check everything. But if everything was open source and clearly you know, defined in that way, we could spare a lot of overhead doing benchmarking. We just sort of, or at least if there was a standard way to run things mm-hmm. that yeah. uh, we would be able to do the benchmarking quicker. Like, as you know, there's always versions and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. So yeah, I think oh, that's oh. part of the work that's happening now in with these TSVVs, as you said, but there's room for improvement. Well, I, I, I think Ether is uh, funding some work uh, which, which might help there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are we are part of the consortium doing it is on uh, standardizing the components in like a coupled simulation with multiple actors with with multiple codes communicating to to work together on one simulation to get one result and uh, this will give you quite a lot of standardization of how to run codes and also standardization of how to run combined codes uh, so you'll see some interesting stuff coming out there in the next few months. And this is stuff you're working on. Yeah, yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Cool. Yeah, that would be very interested in in, in learning more. Obviously, I don't know how much you can say if it's not, work not, in not progress. Too much, not, not too much, actually. But uh, um, there are some uh, like in the, in the Ether conference pages, there are explanations. Okay. So this, see, this is one of the other one of the issues that uh, uh, I think will bite Ether again is. Uh, all the work that is done due to the this ITER agreement has to be only accessible to member states. Never mind that this is 80% of the world population or something. This other 20% is not paying, so they shouldn't see it. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, the consequence of that means that is that um, all of this work which happens has to go behind a paywall. Well, it's not really a paywall, it's a login wall, and you can get access if you ask the right people. But uh, it's not really open to start to junior researchers, to people who are interested in fusion for a master's thesis, but are not linked to one of the existing groups. And and most importantly, you cannot find the documentation on Google Mm -hmm. because it's not public. Yeah, and there would be no way for you to know that such a body of tools exists unless you happen to know the right person effectively. (laughs) Exactly, And and so to me, this is a drag on uh our innovation speed as a community okay yeah that's i i fully agree i think that they're they're definitely i mean everybody has their own login wall as you say i think i have like 20 passwords right like it's and then 20 different logins for each european institute it's and abroad even as well so i think it is definitely an issue that needs to be solved at some point even if even if it's just one single central login would still already be very nice, right? If you have to put it behind some sort of protective wall. Um, yeah, but and a, still... a nice process to, to get access to because uh, like typically the access rules are not that strict. I no. think any associated institute can get, can, can get this code, but uh, you have to ask. And uh, uh, so we're, we're working or we're, we're asking at least if this can be more open and suggesting that it should be, but it's not up to us. Okay, fair enough. Well, I mean, I wish you good luck in, in that endeavor. I would have really appreciated if it is open sourced for sure. And I think, I guess, 
we're kind of rounding up on our time. So I do want to ask you, do you have any sort of like final opinions or final recommendations for software infusion, right? Like things that you would like to see as you move forward or think are neglected overall as like an over, you can even talk about things we've already talked about. Oh yeah. So no, actually, I, I, I think I'm quite happy with what's happening. I guess there's, there's a whole bunch of very advanced computing happening in Fusion, really pushing the limits on some things. Uh, um, there's, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of things to be very proud of. There's also a bunch of things which we should go faster on, um, especially our predictive modeling of our Fusion machines is uh, not great yet. And uh, <laughs> I agree. That is something that I'm working on as well. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You, well. Well. Yeah. Exactly. And um, from what I've seen, you're doing great. You're doing a great job. But I should be much more invested into this field to to get to the situation that we can we can safely run Ether instead of take the risk to uh, to break something because we hit a path of the discharge that we haven't foreseen. So. Um, we have a lot of work to do, but there's there's been incredible modeling advances. And uh, I think we'll get, we'll get there. It's just that it's a it's a very interesting and very complicated problem to to look at, Phys yes. physics wise and compute wise. Yes, and it's also a very exciting time because we are starting to become more integrated in in terms of not just the codes but the people involved in it. There's these big frameworks to try and get everyone talking again rather than being isolated in different institutes around the world. And I think that that will improve as well. It would help significantly. Yeah, All right. yeah I, I agree. It's, uh, um, I think we're doing the right things and uh, uh, let's see if we can, uh, we can get some nice results out of our ETH operation and uh, continue our, our fusion research. Uh, yeah, get there in time. Great. Okay, then. So then with that, thank you very much, Don, for coming on to the podcast today. It was a great conversation about how the state of software infusion. And for all you listeners out there, uh, just to remind you that the Coffee Breakdown podcast is a place where we want to emphasize the creative and human side of science. And we like you to take into account that not just you are learning, but also us here, myself, and all our guests. And so with all of that, thank you again for joining us and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye.